friends, welcome to God on Tap, and as always, I am Nika Spalding, and we are pressing on into the second half of chapter three. We're going to finish up chapter three today, and so, yeah, let's jump right in. First John chapter three, verses 11 to 24. First John chapter three, verses 11 to 24. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, If our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him, and by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Well, yesterday, in the same way that John was going back to the moral test, today he is going back to the social test. And if you remember, the moral test is your obedience to God, the social test is your love of your neighbor, and the doctrinal test is these, you know, beliefs, these rational beliefs about the faith. And man, you know, John, I I just love him so much because he doesn't pull punches. I feel like John is so extreme. And so I'm just going to have like a little, I just, I need to, I need to get this off my chest, guys. Um... Uh, so I'm an Enneagram 8. I know I've said that before. And uh, one of the things about 8s is that uh, we sometimes really hate armchair Enneagram experts on Instagram's view of us. Okay. And I'm not, and I look, I know this isn't an exclusive 8 thing because I think 4s feel this way, but I think 4s feel this way about everything. Like, I don't, I don't mean this tacky. Like, I think y'all are very hard to describe. I even have a hard time describing my four friends. So, like, solidarity here in this right like I'm yes but what happens with eights is um I can always tell when someone hasn't like you like when someone who's talking about an eight is in an eights inner circle and then I can tell when someone's talking about eight but they're not actually in an eights inner circle and like eights have very small inner circles so there's a good chance some of y'all just aren't in an inner circle of an eight so yeah I'm just gonna be real honest here and let out some trade secrets here and so there was a an individual on Instagram who was posting about Enneagram stuff. And I, the, look, look, y'all might be able to figure out who this is. So I'm trying to, I'm trying to say this without shade because I just got to get it off my chest. But this individual was taking the numbers and then they were putting like different ways. Like, you know how people do, like if an eight walked into an ice cream store, they would demand that they're the manager. I don't know, whatever. That was really dumb. But anyways, you know what I'm saying? So one of the things this girl was doing is in addition to the numbers, she was like, you know, ascribing different values and traits. And then she was like giving a biblical character to each of the different numbers. 
and the the person that she gave to the eight, I was like, are you kidding me? The, the biblical character that she ascribed to the eight was like emotionally manipulative by a woman. And I was like, we, we are always in control. Like, what are you talking about? And then I looked and she gave John to a different number and that uh, is not necessarily known for their boldness and their black and white thinking. And this just, I just like, I, I just was like, I, I took like a week vacation to get over this. It was just, no, I'm kidding. I really don't care that much. Guys, I really don't care that much. This is my long way of saying I love John because he's so black and white. And so this is why it's almost comical. John's like, hey, I told you before that you've got to love your neighbor. And so I'm going to tell you it again. And this time I'm going to basically give you two options. You can be like Cain, you murderer, or you can be like Jesus who lays down his life. That's it. There it is. There's no in between. Um, and I love it. I love it. I'm like, John's like, yeah, no, I mean, you can either be a fratricidal psychopath, Cain, who murders his brother because Cain was not righteous and his brother was righteous. And Cain's like, "Mm, I think I'm going to murder you now. And Jesus, those are your two options. And I'm like, uh, so what are we to make of that? Again, there's a context here going on in Ephesus, right? You've got false teachers coming in. They're claiming all these things about Jesus. They're claiming to speak on behalf of Jesus. They were they were not good men. They, they weren't. Um, and so because of that, it, arguably, they don't love their brother. And so John's really setting up an ethic here that says, look, to say that you belong to Christ and to say that you're a spokesperson for Christ, then that needs to be evidenced by your obedience to him, by your love of neighbor and your doctrinal beliefs. And so this is very true to John's writing. And what does that mean for us then, right? Well, I think one of the things I want to point out is um, in in this extremeness, I think it is actually kind of helpful because one of the things that happens in scripture, like let's take the book of Acts. It's really interesting. So so really, let's back up. Let's take the life of Jesus, right? Jesus comes and we love Jesus. Christians love Jesus, right? He says things that we're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But if you notice, who doesn't like Jesus? It's those who claim to be religious leaders, right? The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, and even even like political leaders, right? They don't they don't love Jesus's message. His message is so offensive, which is interesting because if we were to say what is Jesus's message, I would argue it's preaching grace, doing justice, um, and and if that's his message, why is that so offensive to people who say they love Yahweh? And I know why it's offensive to the Roman leaders because uh, they're in power and Jesus is saying things like, oh, no, 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 I'm God. Mm-hmm. And all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So, Pilate, you're nothing. So, look, I get why the Romans would be ticked off. But why, why would the Pharisees and Sadducees be so offended by preaching grace and doing justice? And I, I think it's because being... Being people who care about grace means that those who have privilege and power are having to be told, you didn't get that because you're special. You were given that by either systems of injustice that you need to dismantle, or frankly, if it's not a, it's not, if it's not an unjust opportunity that you have, then it's just grace that gave it to you. God allowed you to be born with some measure of, of opportunity, like like a greater intellect or a great sense of humor or, you know, whatever, whatever it is. And then justice is one that says, you know, it, it smacks up against people who would have power, but that they've accumulated through unjust systems or unjust means. It's what Jesus is constantly 
buffering. It's why Jesus is disrupting them. So Jesus' great reward for this, for laying down his life, is, you know, he they hated him. Right? It's crazy. And then Jesus goes around saying things like, hey, don't be surprised if they hate you. Don't be surprised if they revile you. They revile me. If you belong to me, don't be surprised if the world hates you. And that's exactly what we see in the early church, right? Jesus comes, he dies, he rises again. The early church forms. They are breaking bread, selling all they have, fellowshipping together, praying, all that stuff. And then it's like, yay. And then the whole world held hands and we sing kumbaya. No, no. They hated them. And, and God, because he is sovereign and beautiful and good. He uses the persecution of the early church to expand the evangelistic movement out of Jerusalem into Judea, Samaria, and then eventually with Paul, a transformed terrorist, mind you, into the ends of the earth. And so it's crazy. Like you love your brother and it results in the world hating you, just like John says here. So some of you are listening. And you're like, okay, so here comes the social test. I need to love my brother. Cool. Cool, 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 cool. Uh, I don't think the world hates me for loving my brother. Let me, let me offer this as a thought to that. Uh, in the early church, the church was persecuted for a very long time. I mean, we're talking about Nero burning people at the stake who love the Lord. We're talking about people who are, mar- I mean, 11 of the 12 disciples are martyred. We're talking about um, lions eating them. I mean, we're talking about like really gruesome persecution of the early church. This goes on for a long time. And then in about 325, there's this thing called the Edict of Milan where Constantine was emperor and he makes Christianity the state religion. And then suddenly Christianity moves from the recesses of society where they are persecuted into the center of society where now Christians are able to accumulate power and social status and things like that. That has had a weird and uh, lasting impact in the church today. And so depending on your ethnicity and your birth origin, like wherever you're born, chances are if you're a Christian, that comes with actual social benefits for a long time for a long time so i think people would read this and go listen i I love my brother and i don't the world does not hate me so does that just mean that the world has really transformed well let me challenge you here there are people throughout history that would say hey look you do well to love your neighbor who looks like you and talks like you and has your same values but i believe that god is also calling us to love our neighbor who doesn't look like us and sound like us. I believe that God is calling us to knock down the dividing wall of hostility of racism. I believe that God is asking us to love the immigrant and the refugee. I believe that God is love, wants us to love women in our church enough that we believe them when they tell stories of sexual assault. I believe that God wants us to love our brothers so much that we would preach grace and do justice, which, which are offensive to a world that values power and privilege. And I think if you start speaking out on those things, you will find then that there's some hatred stored up for you. And if you don't believe me, just get on Twitter and, and tweet something. You know, if you if you live in a very conservative evangelical sub subset and you tweet out, uh, I don't know. I don't I don't want to overgeneralize this. I, what I want to say is there's plenty of evidence. Like there there is a, a woman who I would argue is an author in, in well, I wouldn't argue she's an author. She is an author. I would argue a public theologian of sorts. She posted a post about the border. And the crisis at the border and just argued, hey, we got to use better rhetoric 
about the way we talk about people because these are people made in the image of God and some of the ways that we describe folks at the southern border in America is offensive to the gospel. And y'all, you would have think she said, yo mama, people said all kinds of crazy things. And so she is living out this social ethic, which says, look, if you love your brother the way that Christ says, which is to say you lay down your life. And look, she didn't even, she didn't, she's not a martyr. She made a post. And now she's receiving vitriol and pushback and people are calling her names and people aren't happy to hear. This is, that's insane, right? But yet, I think you'll find that if you take your faith seriously enough and you choose to love your brother, that's not just the one that looks like you. And if you call people around you to do the same, you may just find the fulfillment of this passage in your life. And so what does that mean for us? Um, There is a cost to following Jesus. If the chief end of man is to glorify God, and the way that we do that is to obey God and to love like God loved, to be like Christ, not like Cain. Don't be like Cain. It's pretty obvious you shouldn't be like Cain, right? So if you're like Christ, like the thing that Christ was doing all the time is he was like, he was eating with people that were like not the Sadducees and Pharisees' favorite people. In the ancient world, hospitality was more than just a meal. It was more than just breaking bread. It was a way to identify with, like when you were, when you were dining with someone, when you were sharing a meal with someone, then you were communicating, I belong to this person. I'm willing to be identified with this person. It was subversive hospitality. People, that's why people got so offended about who Jesus was eating with. It wasn't just that he was having a meal. It was that he was willing to say, look, I love past the point of comfort. I love past the status quo. I love past comfortable Christianity. I love to the point that the world now thinks less of me. And I do it because I want to be like Christ and lay down my life and love my brother. And so it's a really profound truth. And so so then the question becomes, okay, so, so is that it? Like we're just supposed to be provocative Christians and and be hated by the world? Well, yeah, kind yeah. Um, but don't forget, there's solidarity within the church, right? It's why we can love so well in the world. It's because we come back and we gather as a people who also are doing these same things you're doing. And not only that, in this very passage, Pastor John anticipating that you're like, that is a heavy burden to carry. That is a lot to ask, John. And listen, John has seen his friends die for this. He is not writing as a distant man who's like, listen, I'm up in my ivory tower and it is very plush. I got to be honest with y'all, best mattress I've ever slept on in the ancient world, uses lots of feathers from peacocks. It's fantastic. No, he is writing as a guy who walked with Jesus, saw the man that he loved more than any other man in the world die, saw Jesus rise from the dead, lived with the disciples, loved the disciples, and saw the disciples murdered for their faith. This is a man who understands the cost of following Christ and loving your neighbor to the point that you are willing to be martyred. That's the kind of guy who's writing here. And then he says, and hey, children, the spirit is also with you. This is a heavy call. This is a heavy call to love like Jesus loves. And so you don't have to do it alone. You have people around you who go with you and then you have God himself by the power of the Spirit and dwelling in you, with you, every step of the way. It's how you even know to love in the first place. Like, you are not that loving. Let's be real. You're only able to love sacrificially because God is with you. 
and for you and instructing you and guiding you and energizing you and strengthening you and sustaining you so that you can stand up for the marginalized, so that you can speak out against powers of injustice, so that you can say, hey guys, I don't think it's okay that women are sexually assaulted and we don't take that seriously in our churches. So you can say, hey guys, I don't think it's okay that we continue to live our segregated lives while systems of injustice are in play in our city. I don't think it's okay that we can ignore the crisis at our borders. I don't think that's what it means to follow Jesus. I think we have to love like Jesus loves, which means we got to take up our cross and we've got to die to self and we got to be willing to do the hard thing. I think that's what John is getting at here. It's the way that the world hates us is because we provoke those in power and in privilege. And so I'm not, I don't think it's an easy thing and I don't think I do it perfectly and I think I'm a coward all the time. I think I'm a coward all the time. I think there are times that I don't enter into the fray because I'm tired. But God willingly, I will continue to spend my life loving people the way that Jesus is asking me to. And I believe that you guys listening, if you made it this far, want that to be said of you. And so this is my so what, is that I'd say we really have to believe and take John at face value and the other places of Scripture that say God is with us. That the Spirit indwells us so that the giver of life is able to give us the energy and the sustenance to speak out, to speak up, to love to love so extravagantly that the world would scratch their head at that and say, who loves like this? And then we would say, well, Jesus. This is a lot. And this probably felt like it was just going to be like a lovey-dovey passage, but I think we have to take seriously the call to be like Christ. And I don't, I, I think I'm as passionate as I am because I think I'm trying to ignite it in myself. And so... Look, if you're like me and you're frail and sometimes you just are trying to get through the nine to five and you, and this is hard for you, then I think the so what here is just ask God to give you eyes to see and ears to hear and in your own place and in your own city and in your own neighborhood where you could advocate and love folks who who need to be loved. And of course, that's everyone. So look, I'm not saying it's not the rich person next door to you. I'm, rich people need love too. What I'm saying is, is that I think we have to be extravagant in our love. Because that's what God has shown us. If nobody's told you today that they love you, I do. But way more importantly, God does. Peace out, friends.